Welcome, everybody, for Golden Beer Talks. Good evening. I have a quick couple announcements here. One is thank yous. Always start with gratitude. Begin and end with gratitude. First, Windy Saddle. Their staff does such an awesome job of hosting us and taking care of us. Awesome. Golden.com for always promoting our events and being such a great presence in our community. Singer-performer Greg Reed for providing us with our sound equipment. Most awesome. Uh, quick reminder on how our format works. So we have a 20-minute approximate set of comments from our speaker, and then we'll break again just in case you're still thirsty. And then we'll take a Q&A, and we'll be trying to wrap that up by about quarter till, quarter to eight. Um, so if you have an urgent question, that is the moment for the urgent question, and maybe one, not five, because there's a bunch of questions that come up. We have beer pints for sale with our cute little logo on there. You can get a set of four for $20 if you'd like. It's the best gift for everyone you love. Something to think about. We have an email list floating around. If you aren't on our email list and you would like to get a couple messages a month, just letting you know what we're up to, feel free to sign up. There's one here, and I think there's one on that table. And we also have some little cards floating around for suggestions for speakers. So if you have some thoughts about some speakers you'd like to see, then go ahead and fill one of those out and leave it behind, and we will grab it and follow up. Thanks. I also have a quick update. Last month, we had some speakers here who were representing a brewery that some folks here in Golden have started in Nepal. And one of those people is Nepalese and, and has family and friends there. And so I was looking for um, some follow-up information I could share with you. As you probably know, there was another earthquake yesterday in that same area. So I'm just going to read this update on, on how things are going. The earthquake yesterday was more devastating to those we know in the Kumbu Valley. Lakpa's family village was suffered damage with one house destroyed. They're sleeping outside in tents. Lakpa's brother's home is damaged, and his parents in Kathmandu lost their water tower. They are sleeping in the schoolyard. It looks like there was even more impact this time since the epicenter was closer to Mount Everest and the Kumbu. Uh, but the brewery is standing, and they're using it as a headquarters to disseminate jackets and blankets and any other goods that you're interested in dropping off at St. Joseph's Catholic Church here in Golden. They have a representative from their group who's going next week. He's going to be taking those things and a couple staff members and working on how to use the brewery as a place to headquarter some reparations for folks around there. So um, if you're interested in that and you need more information, let me know. But um, you can drop off anything that you would like to donate at St. Joe's or at the Sherpa restaurant or at the Golden City Brewery. Cool. So next I'm going to bring up our beer ambassador. Frank, come on up. Okay, well, thank you, thank you all for coming this month. I'm uh, really excited about, well, both the beer and the speaker. And the featured brewery this month is Barrels and Bottles, just right around the corner on 612th Street, where right now they've got 22 beers and 24 wines on tap. So they're kind of different from the other breweries. They have lots and lots of, of uh, guest brews that are on tap. Tomorrow at 5, they're going to tap 12 Odell brews, and 12 others will go away. So if there's something they got on right now that you really like, you might want to go there tonight, because by 5 tomorrow, it might be gone. About half of them will go away. Um, Barrels and Bottles also uh, ages a lot of its beers 
in oak barrels. And a lot of the oak barrels that they're aging, their, some of their special limited uh, issue brews in, come from State 38 Distillery over on West Colfax Avenue, also here in Golden. So I kind of like this because it's it kind of fits in with a lot of the sustainability and you know some of the new breweries and distilleries that, that are popping up. Um, so when they get these charred oak barrels that uh, uh, State 38 Brewery has used, distillery has used. Now, it's State 38 because Colorado's the 38th state that joined the union. And so they have kind of a history thing going on at the distillery. Um, but so they use these charred oak barrels to, let's say, uh, age their uh, agave gin or their tequila that they can't call tequila because tequila only comes from Mexico. But anyway, they use these uh, charred oak barrels to age some of their uh, spirits, and then State 38 Brewery uses those to age some of its special beers. And it kind of gives them a more creamy, vanilla-y flavor and kind of makes them a little bit uh, smoother and, let's say, more special. Uh, so those beers that they age in those barrels They'll be serving typically in a tulip sort of glass, so you get more of the aroma from the beer. And um, they'll probably typically serve those beers a little bit warmer so that more of the aromas can uh, come off the beer. And the perhaps the bad point of all of that is that if they have a problem with the beer, it's also more prominent. So I'm sure they're very careful with, with all of those. Right now they have some little IPA, over there aging in one of the oak barrels that's in an agave gin barrel uh, so it was a, an agave based gin that was originally in that barrel from state 38 they're also aging a saison just like we're drinking today but not with the cherry um, they're aging an imperial stout that's going to be something like 12.5% alcohol which is pretty stout and that one's uh, being aged in a bourbon barrel from Breckenridge Brewery and uh, they use those barrels about three times to brew different beers. So what happens to the barrels then? And if you've been over there and you get a flight of beers from them, you know, the, like you want a bunch of tasters, you know, most of the uh, uh, trays that they come in tend to be flat, like a flat piece of wood. And theirs aren't because they're old barrel staves. And I, I never knew that until I asked the question, so what do you do with them after you've used them three times? They use them for beer tappers. So if you look at their beer tappers, they're part of a barrel stave. They use them for the flights for their tasters. And come summer, they're going to expand their patio, and it's going to be defined by some of the barrels that have been used uh, for the requisite number of three brews. Um, let's see. One other thing uh, to note, sort of local interest is they also have, uh, and the two beers today on tap, sorry, that, that are featured are a little IPA, so it's a session IPA from Barrels and Bottles, so it's pretty low in alcohol, about 4.9%, and it's a dry hop, uh, nice little IPA, not very bitter, about 65 IBUs, 4.9 alcohol, and then we have the, uh, uh, the Saison, which is a cherry Saison, so it's a French Farmhouse ale, brewed in the winter, served in the summer, should be refreshing, should be nice and tasty. And it was, if you'll recall from a few months ago, an almost dead brew until it was revived by American craft brewers. And so we get to benefit from the revolution in Saison brewing. Um, 
Also, they have on tap another one of their beers right now is their Sinful Porter, which is very high in kind of cinnamon flavors, and it's got coffee in it. And just for local interest, the coffee is an Ethiopian coffee that comes from Pangea Brewing or Pangea Roasters, which are over on Cheyenne Avenue, just south of uh, Golden City Brewery. So um, there's the local beer interest and beer flavors. And I'm also here to introduce Dr. Jeffrey Allen Lockwood. Uh, we generally have the people that recruit the speakers introduce the speakers. And I uh, re- recruited Dr. Lockwood because I thought his book, Locust, was just an amazing book. And it was a piece of history that's underappreciated. You know, uh, reading, for instance, the Little House on the Prairie books and all these grasshoppers come and eat everything. They eat the curtains and they eat dresses that the people are wearing. And it's like, come on, that's not really believable. It's just, that's beyond anything that anyone has experienced. And then you actually learn what the history is, and you discover that it was even worse than it's described. And so uh, the book on locusts from Dr. Jeffrey Allen Lockwood, I think, is an amazing piece of history. And Dr. Lockwood is an award-winning author from the University of Wyoming. So he drove down from Laramie today. And so I would like everyone to please give him a round of applause just for coming to see us. So Dr. Lockwood got his BS degree in biology from New Mexico Institute of Mining and Technology, where he was a 1982 recipient of the Brown Award, and he received his PhD in entomology from Louisiana State University. He began at University of Wyoming in 1986 as a professor of entomology, and now he's uh, before becoming a professor of natural sciences and humanities, and he is now in the philosophy department and teaching in the Masters of Fine Arts and doing creative writing. And if you read Locust, it is a wonderfully written book. So I, I, and it's the only one of his nine books that I have read, but I'm going to read more because uh, I think Locust, rereading it, we've, my wife and I have been rereading it, and um, uh, very well written, very interesting, lots of little asides. Um, let's see, he's, he's authored nine books, and I'll let him speak. <laughs> Dr. Jeffrey Allen Lockwood from the University of Wyoming. Well, thank you for having me. I um I really appreciate being here in the uh, in the town of the other Institute of Mining and Technology. Uh, we won't go there. Yeah, that's right. Um, Frank said that I had 20 minutes, and so I, I I wrote myself out an outline and practiced it, and it took 50. <laughs> then I realized I was a university professor, so all of my thoughts come in 50-minute chunks. And so I thought, well, I better, I better work from a script here if I'm going to stick my 20 minutes. So you have to sort of forgive me for reading, but it was the only way that I, I don't have self-discipline in, in most of my life, and in, including in these formats. So I'm going to work from a script, and uh, I'll try to make it lively for you, though. The tiny, limp body had been violently mangled. Although the corpse had also begun to rot, it still retained distinguishing features in the essence of its original form. 
Having spent the last four years honing my forensic skills while searching for precisely these remains, I was able to identify the body as being that of Melanoplus spritus, the Rocky Mountain locust, the only locust known to have existed in North America. And here it was, melting out of the ice from Knife Point Glacier in, the nor in northwestern Wyoming, 400 years after a swarm had been deposited on that frozen mountain pass. This was the first incontrovertible specimen of this creature to be collected in nearly a century. Its extinction, which culminated in the early days of the 20th century, represented a loss of a continental scale process. No longer would this living conveyor belt distribute immense loads of organic material across the Great Plains. Consider that large swarms weighed thousands of tons and required 100,000 pounds of vegetation a day to stoke their metabolic fires. No longer would an eerie shadow sweep across the cloudless prairie and then give way to the papery rattle of billions, even trillions, of insects in flight. These events are still known on every other inhabited landmass, but North America will never again experience the staggering scale of life in motion, the humbling sweep of fecundity, or a biological eclipse of the sun. Let's begin the story of the Rocky Mountain locust in the time of the Old West. From here we can see how this creature came to shape the nation during a time in which a young country was trying to grasp the promises and perils of its frontier. We can peek into the lives of the pioneers, reading from letters they sent back to family in the East. In July of 1874, Edwin Snyder of Highland, Kansas, penned a chilling description of a summertime blizzard transforming into a swarm of locusts. He wrote, At our place, they commenced coming down about one o'clock in the afternoon. They came rattling and pattering on the houses and against the windows, falling on the fields, on the prairies, and waters everywhere on, on, and on everything. By about four o'clock in the afternoon, every tree and bush, buildings, fences, fields, roads, and everything except animated beings was completely covered in grasshoppers. We might be tempted to dismiss such extraordinary tales, but the federal government was reluctantly affirming the depth and breadth of the crisis. A U.S. Army major was dispatched to Nebraska in the fall of 1874 to assess the situation. His report to the Secretary of War revealed that in the most desperate precincts, four out of every five families were at risk of starvation in the coming winter. In the best of circumstances, one-third of the people would require assistance. And so as temperatures dropped and suffering mounted in early 1875, Congress took up the matter of the pioneers' plight in the bitterly cold days of winter. Lawmakers appropriated $150,000 for food and clothing, quote, to prevent starvation and suffering of those who have been rendered destitute and helpless by the ravages of grasshoppers. The Dakota, Missouri, and Platte departments of the Army participated in a massive relief effort. Nearly two million food rations were distributed that winter to more than 100,000 people in Colorado, Dakota, Iowa, Kansas, Minnesota, and Nebraska. How many graves were filled with emaciated victims of the locusts is not known, but perhaps hundreds succumbed to hunger. The number would likely have been in the thousands if the country had not rallied to save the starving settlers. The suffering of the pioneers is powerfully etched into the American mind by the writings of Laura Ingalls Wilder's Little House on the Prairie. 
In the fourth book of the classic series, locusts devastate the family farm on the banks of Plum Creek, and the father is forced to leave his family behind in search of work. His journey echoes our culture's canonical story of people wandering in the wilderness, seeking the promised land. Laura learns from her mother's reading of scripture that locusts played a pivotal role in the time of the Egyptian pharaohs. And so the tale of the pioneers becomes interwoven with Western culture's most deep and abiding literary account of locusts. Perhaps the Wilders sensed that they were part of a great human migration, an American exodus across the continent. But what they did not know while watching their farm disappear under a blanket of locusts that summer was that no people on earth, not even a pharaoh, had ever witnessed a swarm of such immensity. Albert Child. Albert Child was an experienced meteorologist providing reports to the country's weather service in 1873. And he was the right man at the right place at the right time to provide a definitive account of the most immense swarm of locusts in recorded human history. He began his account with the objective tone of a trained observer. And now I pause for a prop. The account I'm going to read you comes from this book, which is the second report of the U.S. Entomological Commission published in the 1870s. And I've actually put a marker in the page that, um, from where I take this account. So I'll pass this around. If I don't get it back, I will hunt you down. So goes his account. The extent of the swarm is difficult to ascertain as the observer can only see a small belt. During the flight from June 15 to 25 of 1875, I telegraphed east and west. I found a continuous line moving northward of 110 miles and then somewhat broken 40 miles farther. With the movement of the winds for five days averaged 10 miles an hour and the locusts evidently moved considerably faster than the wind at least 15 miles per hour. So like any good scientist, Dr. Child took his data and transformed the raw numbers into a complete picture of what he had witnessed. The mathematics were simple, but the results were nearly beyond imagination. When Dr. Child presented his straightforward calculations as to the aggregate size of the locust swarm that was passing over Nebraska, he was incredulous of his own findings. And I quote, they were visible from six to seven hours of each of the successive five days, and I can see no reason to suppose that their flight was checked during the whole of the five days. If so, the army in the line of advance would be 120 hours by 15 miles per hour, or 1,800 miles in length, and say 110 miles in width, an area of 198,000 square miles, and then from one quarter to one half mile deep. This is utterly incredible, yet how can we put it aside? 198,000 square miles would encompass the combined areas of Colorado and Wyoming border to border. The swarm was probably an elongated stream of insects, but if it had been configured in a more familiar geometric shape, it would have comprised a square 450 miles on a side. The frontier of the New World was reve revealing marvels and terrors of a scale unparalleled in human history. The largest swarm of locusts outside of North America was reported in 1954, when less than 100 square miles were covered by the notorious desert locust in Kenya. Trying to estimate the number of locusts in what might be called the perfect swarm, <laughs> yeah, that's pretty good, 
is quite a challenge, but we can use some values from the scientific literature to approximate the size of the population. We might safely assume a settled density similar to that of the infamous locust swarms in Africa. If so, then the 1875 swarm that passed over North America had three and a half trillion locusts, outnumbering the current human population on Earth by a factor of 500 to 1. The swarm outweighed a man to the same degree that the biomass of a whale exceeds that of a mouse. If we find it difficult to imagine such a mass of life, it's even more challenging to grasp that less than 30 years after Dr. Child's account, the Rocky Mountain locust disappeared forever. The last specimen was caught by a Canadian entomologist in 1902. I've got to start lecturing with beer more often. This is great. <laughs> At first, the disappearance of the locust was simply unbelievable, but an enticing explanation soon emerged. You see, a locust is a special kind of grasshopper, not a particular taxonomic group. The locust has a per peculiar life history strategy, a sort of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde transmorgification that involves the capacity to change its physiology, behavior, and morphology in response to environmental cues, especially crowding. The migratory phase is darker in color, has longer wings, and exhibits a propensity for aggregation when it accounts for its forming dense, dense bands of nymphs and to develop into vast swarms of adults. In the solitary phase, the locust is indistinguishable from a grasshopper. The initial theory of the Rocky Mountain locust disappearance was that the extinction was an illusion. The solitary phase, it was hypothesized, was still extant, but a change in ecological conditions simply prevented the appearance of the well-known migratory form. Entomologists pr proposed various candidates for the solitary form, but despite heroic efforts to force a transformation, nobody could reincarnate the Rocky Mountain locust. In more recent times, biochemical and genetic analyses of locust specimens preserved in glacial ice have confirmed that the Rocky Mountain locust was a true species, not simply the migratory form of some still existing grasshopper. What could possibly account for the extinction of a species that once blanketed two-thirds of the United States? Next prop. So these are, these are a, a Riker mount of some uh, locust bodies and parts that I collected from Knife Point Glacier. Um, now, one of the things you'll note is that they are not impressively large. Of course, three and a half trillion of them would be pretty impressive. So I'll pass this around. For half a century, scientists proposed and refuted a series of explanations ranging from changing climate to bison hunting. There seemed to be no ecological change with the timing and particularly the spatial scale to account for the locust demise. And therein, lay the key. During outbreaks, the Rocky Mountain locusts occupied nearly two million square miles, but the solution to its extinction was not the species ecology at the height of its flourishing. Instead, the answer lay in understanding the creature during the time of its most restricted distribution. As with other locusts, in most years, the climatic factors necessary to elicit an outbreak did not develop, and the populations eked out a living in highly restricted habitats where they could find adequate food for their bellies and suitable soil for their eggs. The fertile, river Mon the fertile montane river valleys of the west were the locust sanctuary and its Achilles heel. 
During its recession, the entire species would have comfortably fit into a circle of land less than 20 miles in diameter. Of course, the river valleys are not laid out in neat circles, nor are the locusts uniformly distributed in the mountains. However, no, no matter how we parse out the locusts and their habitats, the implication is the same. The species was regularly squeezed into a tight ecological bottleneck. When the outbreak of the 1870s collapsed, the locust became concentrated again in these mountain valleys, and its timing could not have been worse. For these were precisely the lands that the pioneers sought to convert to agricultural production. Farming the river valleys of the Rockies became enormously profitable thanks to the burgeoning demand for food by the mining industries. Growing grain, not finding gold, held the key to sure wealth. And so it was that the locust sanctuaries were decimated by tillage, irrigation, and livestock grazing. It sounds incredible that the most spectacular success in the history of economic entomology, the only complete elimination of an agricultural species, was a consequence of an unwitting bunch of frontier farmers armed with plows and cows. But consider a modern parallel, the monarch butterfly. Much like the locust in the late 1800s, this migratory species is poised for extinction. How could a butterfly that fills roadsides and fields from Texas to Maine be in jeopardy? Well, at the end of each summer, the species packs itself into a few pockets of fir forest in the mountains above Mexico City. Imagine having 30 or 40,000 monarchs in an area the size of your living room. Loosed on these sanctuaries, a logging crew could inadvertently put an end to this magnificent butterfly in a matter of a few weeks. Indeed, there is much to learn in modern times from the lessons of the Rocky Mountain locust. Although it required nearly 75 years, we finally resolved that the Rocky Mountain locust was a true species. But a greater question remains. The debate itself raises the question of what constitutes a species and reveals our philosophical biases. We usually conceive of the world in terms of material things. For example, a species is a bunch of biologically similar individuals. But this presumes the metaphysical primacy of materialism, that to be real is to be made of matter. Ecology, however, is beginning to shift its focus with tentative explorations of what the world would look like if process, rather than matter, was the basis of reality. For the Rocky Mountain locust, it was the swarms, or more precisely, the process of swarming that constituted this remarkable species. This perception of the locust's essence is counter to the material terms in which we usually conceive of the world. We normally define a species as a set of individuals with some shared qualities, typically the capacity to successfully interbreed. This orthodox definition equates being real with being made of matter. In this light, a species is the sum total of its members, the Rocky Mountain locust being comprised of trillions of bodies that washed over the continent like a living tsunami. A tsunami. You see, a wave is not water. Our sense that a wave is a mound of moving water is an illusion. The wave is the energy coursing through the fluid, while the fluid is merely the observable evidence of that which surges within. A wave is no more water than a wind is trembling aspen leaves. In this light, we might seriously doubt whether the monarch butterfly can be conserved within a refuge, a zoological garden, a vial of DNA, or a sequence of the letters A, T, C, and G. 
If this species could not cluster against the chill rains of winter and sprawl into the milkweed patches of summer, what would we have conserved? What if a thing is what it does? What if we defined a species in terms of its life processes? In this light, the Rocky Mountain locust was an immense aperiodic energy flow that linked living systems across a continent. It died well before the last corporeal manifestation disappeared. Perhaps somewhere in the vastness of the Rocky Mountains, a remnant population of the locust clings to life within a fragment of habitat. But they would be no more their original species than a colony of monarch butterflies flitting futilely within a glasshouse. Unless the locust could once again blacken the skies, it would, in fact, be something else. Perhaps the Rocky Mountain grasshopper, but not the Rocky Mountain locust. Well, as you well know, the year 2002 passed without any recognition of its being the centennial of the material demise of the Rocky Mountain locust. There was neither mourning nor celebration of this biologically momentous event. Perhaps our willingness to overlook the passing of this species was a matter of blissful ignorance, for if we understood the story of its extinction, the implications for our environmental complacency would be most disturbing. The simplest and most unambiguous lesson that we can learn from the Rocky Mountain locust is that numerical abundance does not assure survival. Having reached seven billion people, we need only look back at the voracious swarms of the Rocky Mountain locust to realize that our future is no brighter for our quantity. Being an abundant, polyphagous, and highly mobile species is no guarantee against extinction. There does, however, seem to be a major difference between our condition and that of the Rocky Mountain locust. This species became wholly reliant on a place, requiring it to sacrifice other options and accept the risks of being profoundly and deeply linked to a landscape. For the locust, the fertile river valleys of the west were its sanctuary, a habitat where it could always find what it needed and persist in the face of adversity. The complex and intimate connections between the land and native species are difficult, perhaps impossible, to express in objective scientific terms, but cherished places are central to the well-being of many creatures. Even with all the right conditions of temperature, light, humidity, and diet, animals often languish in zoos. They are unable to express what is missing, and perhaps we would be unable to understand, unless we too had experienced the soul-wrenching loss of being forced from a farm or ranch that had been in the family for generations, or being driven from a homeland that defined our traditions, stories, and hopes. We are reluctant to call the habitats of other species sacred because their sacrifices are not volitional and their seeking of sanctuary is unconscious. But wait, we did not design the World Trade Center to collapse in on itself. We did not plan for a buck and rail fence east of Laramie to be the site where Matthew Shepard would be sacrificed to our fear of differences. We did not intend the basements and attics of the houses along the Underground Railroad to be sanctuaries for runaway slaves. As self-aware animals, we do what we can to protect our sacred spaces. And perhaps we should honor the needs of other creatures for their hallowed places. Despite my deep understanding that the Rocky Mountain locust is gone, gone as a species, I've searched for remnant populations in the irrational hope of meeting a few survivors. They may no longer be able to transform into the migratory phase, but I imagine that being in the midst of this noble creature might well transform me, much like being in the presence of a wise teacher. 
My surveys of grasshoppers in the greater Yellowstone ecosystem have yet to yield a definitive specimen of this long-lost creature. But even if I found a pocket of habitat still harboring the locust, regulatory officials might well advocate their destruction, as the potential for a return to the swarms of the 1800s would be possible. Even the vaunted Endangered Species Act exempts pests from protection. I like to imagine, however, that in an ironic peak, economic, economic entomologists would point out that a Rocky Mountain locust population that had not bothered us for a century could hardly be termed a pest. From the environmental camp, a few voices might call for protecting these insects as participants in a native ecosystem struggling to sustain its biological integrity. And there might be appeals to the Rocky Mountain locust capacity to serve as a reminder, a reminder that we must share this world with other species even those that we have not tamed or controlled. And a few advocates would probably invoke the powerful place of this species in the story of the West and the folklore of America. But in the end, in the end, would our decision be any different from that which would have been made by the early pioneers had they realized that they had reduced their nemesis to a single locale? If we struggle so mightily with whether we should save the last bits of old growth forest, and the few untrammeled tracks of the Arctic, what hope would a locust have? What have we really learned about ourselves and our place in the natural world? Thank you. All right, let's take a little break, get another drink, get a snack, whatever you need, and we'll come back here in about 10 minutes for a little Q&A. Because monarch butterflies need something to eat. Um, yeah, well, basically, plant milkweed because it's a native plant, and uh, milkweed is a beautiful plant, and milkweed supports an important native species. Um, I don't know if, you know, I, I think um, milkweed on, on roadsides is, is sort of a gorgeous sight. Do, do, why, why shouldn't we plant milkweed? <laughs> Yeah, um, I mean, it's, you know, creating habitat in North America is, is a part of the solution to the conservation of the monarch. But obviously, if we don't preserve its overwintering grounds, we can plant all the milkweed we want. Now, it's, I, I made that story a little simpler. There's actually another population of, of monarchs um, along the West Coast. And so they overwinter in, in various places in California. So it wouldn't actually be the end of the entire species, but it would be an end of the vast majority of that species if we were to lose the populations in Mexico. They, uh, right. So, so how did how did locusts know where to go? They had tiny little maps, and they uh, <laughs> no. they Google. Yeah, I, I Google map. It was early on. Now, um, early on, there was actually the thought that swarms had leaders, right? Um, but it turns out not to be the case. Um, most locust swarms basically use three rules. It's kind of interesting. There was this computer program called Boyd's that sort of revealed these rules. And basically, if you're a locust, you follow three rules, and that is uh, stay about a meter away from the nearest locust to you. So that's your space. Right? Head toward the densest, highest density of your swarm. 
and then also head in the direction of the primary movement. And so what happened apparently is that most of this was just driven by weather phenomena. Um, they were riding the prevailing winds. And the prevailing winds would, would carry them out of the mountains and, and, and out into the plains. And then there was this big, big controversy, and it still isn't quite clear, as to whether there was actually a return migration after generations back to the mountain valleys. And so the question was, does, does the locust sort of head out into the, you know, into the wild frontier and then somehow circulate back into the mountain valleys, or does it leave a population behind, sort of a seed population? And of course, we don't know at this point. The best guess is, is that there were some return migrations, but they probably couldn't count on those. So it's, it's most likely that some remained behind. Um, and of course, if you're talking about millions or billions or trillions, you don't need many to sort of reseed that valley. Yeah. Sure, you, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so do you think, um, was it a subset of river drainage, do you think? Or do you think it was just any, any river drainage would have been fair game for the final habitat? Or like, is, is there some river that just was the key, but we just totally messed it up? Right. Right. So, so the question is whether there was a particular river valley or whether there was just sort of like any old river valley up in the Rockies. Um, you know, my guess is that, um, and we've looked at this with some mathematical models and tried to explain, because it seems sort of unbelievable that we sort of snuffed out every last locust, right? And so what probably was occurring in these river valleys is, is what we call in ecology a metapopulation. And so you can imagine these river valleys having their own sort of local populations, um, which probably had a pretty high local extinction rate by flooding or various other things. But there was also a really, probably a very high recolonization rate, right? So you can think of it as a network where the nodes are kind of blinking out, but then they're getting turned on by recolonization from adjacent river valleys. Um, and so some river valleys were probably better than others, right? And those were probably source populations. Some were probably more sketchy than others in the world of locusts. Um, and those might have winked out with some regularity and then needed to be sort of reseeded or recolonized. Um, I mean, the crucial thing for the locusts were these, for their eggs, were these well-drained, sandy river, river soils. Um, and so hard-packed soils, clay soils, were not particularly conducive to their successful egg laying. And then, basically, they needed a, a continuous source of, of, of green food so that during really droughty periods, these were like sanctuary. These were the, the, the places that, that always provided enough food for them to get by in decent um, sort of sandy, well-drained soils. Um, the other thing that certainly damaged the locust, um, as pioneers uh, found in some cases, was flooding. So you could, you could sort of destroy the eggs by drowning them. Um, and these sandy, these sandy uh, mountain valleys, of course, you know, you've been up there. It rains, and that, that water just sinks into the soil and then runs out through, through the rivers. So you don't get pooling, and that way you don't get um, the eggs aren't sitting in water. Um, they're very vulnerable to fungal pathogens, and so they, they have to stay relatively dry. Yeah. Right. So, so were they or could they be a nutritional source? The um, the author of the book that somebody better have um, is there. You go. Very good. All right. Is uh, Charles Valentine Riley? He and his two colleagues were from the early days of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Actually, came up with this idea that maybe the the pioneers could feed themselves off of the locusts, and they actually worked with 
a chef in, in St. Louis to develop recipes for locusts. And, and so there's a little section in there on, not, not in that volume, but in, in later works on basically how to prepare locusts. And the idea was that they should be high in fat and protein. Um, and then in, in tight times, you could gather them up and feed yourself off the locusts. But we, we have such an aversion to eating insects, even back in the 1800s, that it, it never really took off. Um, <laughs> Now, there, there were some Native Americans who, who evidently relied very heavily on locusts, um, as well as Mormon crickets um, for food sources. And, and, and even the, the Native people of Africa, prior to agriculture, the hunter-gatherers, considered locust outbreaks right, manna from heaven. Right? It's all this free protein and fat right, raining down on you. What could be better than that? So, um, so yeah, they're, they're a very good food item. And, and actually in the 1930s during grasshopper outbreaks in the western United States, they would bring out train cars full of turkeys um, and turn them loose on the prairie to, to fatten up the turkeys. Of course, the problem was that also the turkeys tended to fatten up the coyotes. But anyway, it was a kind of a cool idea. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, there was there was a two connection, two weird connections made between uh, bison hunting and the Rocky Mountain locust. One of the connections was the idea that bison somehow created mm, microhabitats, um, altered the prairie in some way that was beneficial to the locusts. Um, and if you look at sort of the overhunting of the bison and the demise of the locusts, you kind of get a temporal thing going. It doesn't match up all that well. But it's kind of a cool story because you've got these two native species that occur in large numbers. Um, and so one idea was that the locusts went into decline because of the decline of the bison. All right? Somehow the bison were creating a habitat that was good for them. But, of course, we now know that the locusts were, were hanging out up in the mountains, not necessarily down in the prairies. The other idea was that, no, no, it was the other way around. It was the d- decline of the bison that led to the outbreaks of the locusts. Right? So we, were, we had eliminated a competitor, which had opened up this ecological space for the locust. Um, it turns out that there's not a lot of diet overlap between the locust and the bison either. So, I mean, it was, people were looking at things, I mean, it was kind of reasonable to look at, at um, changes in the western landscape of a scale that sort of was commensurate with the scale of the Rocky Mountain locust. And, that's, and of course, the bison was um, both its, its, its decline and, and uh, its, its huge herds were, were there. The other, the other, uh, one of the other major theories involved Native Americans. The idea was that somehow Native Americans had created habitat that was, um, let's see, how the hell did this work? Um, Native Americans had created habitat that was detrimental to the locust now it was advantageous. That's right. It was advantageous to the locust, and so when we wiped out the Native Americans, um, that that again created an opportunity, or conversely, created a, a, an, an undesirable set of circumstances. For instance, we know that Native Americans used fire extensively and opened up larger areas of prairie that would otherwise have been forested. The idea was, well, maybe when we when we decimated the Native Americans. Right, the prairie was was recolonized by trees, blah blah blah, in the Ohio Valley. But none of that was happening on a scale or fast enough to really account for the, the ecological changes. So, um, again, it was looking for uh, sort of ecological events of a sufficient scale and about the right time. Um, and so, Native Americans and bison were were two of the big candidates. Yeah. So. How far east did they really go? Did they go much beyond the Mississippi River? 
No, as a matter of fact, they, they sort of reach sort of reach their limits at the, at the Mississippi River. But, of course, what's happening when you get to the Mississippi is you're getting forested rather than open grasslands. And those soils apparently were, and, and those habitats were, um, were just simply not conducive. Um, there was some penetration of swarms into those areas, but they couldn't reproduce because the soil type was too compacted, the habitat was too wet, um, you know, probably uh, the soils were of the wrong kind. So they never got much further east than the Mississippi. Yeah. My mom talked about army worms in 1910 to 20, someplace in there. So what, what's the story there? The story of the army worms? Um, that's a good question. I'm not much of an expert on army worms. Um, um, you know, we, we get, you know, one of the, my, my suspicion with army worms as well as some of these other pests is that, that we often believe that their outbreaks are somehow an indication that we've screwed up, right? My suspicion with army worm and, say, rangeland caterpillar and some of these other things is, no, they probably have these enormous outbreaks. Same thing with pine beetle, although we are feeding that one by by climate change. But there are a number of species that simply reach outbreak numbers. And we have such a short memory and such a short time frame on this continent that what constitutes as unprecedented in the 1920s, right, is, is a really sort of myopic short view. My suspicion is that um, a lot of these, these, these uh, events are, were probably occurring for centuries, at least in some sort of erratic fashion. Yeah. That, yeah, that's a great question. Um, not a whole lot. Uh, well, there's, there's some suspicions. For instance, uh, are there birders here, right? Eskimo curlew, right? You're not going to find that creature around much more. Um, some people think that it was closely linked to the, uh, that its biology was dependent upon these periodic outbreaks of the Rocky Mountain locust. For the most part, probably what was happening at the time is the locust was in decline. Western agriculture was importing massive numbers of cattle. Um, and so we were probably kind of involved in a herbivore substitution scheme. Um, there may have been, you know, a number of species, probably insect species, that were dependent upon the Rocky Mountain locust. But again, our understanding of North American um, fauna, especially the insect fauna, was so poor that we probably have lost all sorts of things without ever knowing about it. Um, you know, when, when you've got something that is sort of aperiodic in that way, there's not many things that can become super highly dependent on them um, because they're just unpredictable. And so my guess is that they, they represented sort of this, this enormous opportunity for birds and some other uh, sorts of predators to really amp up their populations sort of tracking. But without the Rocky Mountain locust, some speculation is that we opened up the prairie ecosystem for um, outbreaks of native grasshoppers. Now, they don't reach the sort of densities, uh, but they also, for instance, 1930s were famed for their outbreaks of grasshoppers. And there's some speculation that what was happening is that with the loss of the Rocky Mountain locust, a competitor was eliminated, and a number of these native uh, grasshopper species that were sort of waiting in the ecological wings were able to exploit these opportunities and not have to compete with the Rocky Mountain locust. Yeah. What, uh, what drove you to go up to a glacier to collect insect stuff? Well, because, yeah, yeah. How did that help you solve your mystery? 
Well, it mostly gave me an excuse to get out of Laramie and uh, <laughs> convince the administration that hiking on a glacier was something they should pay me to do. I mean, it's a, they are so easy to fool. No, um, I was, you know, I, I was, it was yeah, yeah, there you go. I was hired at the University of Wyoming to be a grasshopper ecologist, and I ended up working on international locusts as well as a lot of rangeland grasshopper problems. And when you get into that field, of course, the story of the Rocky Mountain locust was, you know, was abiding, right? Everyone knew that story. And I was always interested in the Rockies, interested in, 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 in climbing and hiking and whatnot. And I, you know, looking at maps and stories and whatnot, there's a number of, of grasshopper glaciers. And sort of the famous one near Cook City, Montana, that we went to first. But there's, there's actually two other grasshopper glaciers and a hopper glacier in the Rockies. And so one of the problems, it's going to sound kind of crazy, but one of the problems with trying to figure out what had happened to the Rocky Mountain locust is that we only had about 300 specimens, right, in all of the world's collections. Um, because nobody ever thinks of collecting something, right, that's blackening the skies, and its demise was so rapid that, that it basically disappeared with very few people making collections. So all the specimens that we had, and they were relatively few, and museum curators are such a pain in the ass because they don't like destructive testing of their stuff. Um, <laughs> so I was looking for material to work with, um, and all the specimens that were in, the, in museums were basically called in the last 20 years of the locust's existence. So we had no picture of what it looked like genetically or biochemically, its pathogen loads. We had no specimens during its heyday, only during its last days. It's sort of like, you know, trying to figure out the biology of humans based on, you know, 300 people between the ages of, you know, 90 and 103. Um, you know, you're going to get kind of a weird picture. Um, and so I was, looking for, I was looking for material from the glaciers um, to try to get a handle on what the species looked like biochemically, genetically, and otherwise um, prior to its decline. We were looking in particular for the possibility of genetic bottlenecks. Maybe there was something that had, had caused it. Um, instead of looking at what has happened in the 1870s, maybe it was in some sort of a decline, but we never found any evidence that it was in trouble. Um, and so this, its disappearance you know, couldn't be accounted for as sort of a decades-old story. Um, it did seem sort of like a murder mystery. It was doing fine in the 1870s. 25 years later, it was gone with no indication that it was in trouble. Yeah. Um, from what we can tell from, from Riley's work, in, in most years, it probably only had one generation in most locations. It's possible that in some of the southern states, um, because it, it made it all the way down to northern Mexico, Arizona, Texas, Oklahoma, it may have cranked out a second generation, but throughout most of its range, it only had a single generation. L like, like most all of, the, of the, the native prairie grasshoppers have. Yeah. Yeah. Well, going back to the glacier, <laughs> um, Knife Point Glacier up in the Wind Rivers turned out to be a real boon for that because the glacier there has very clear annual deposition layers. 
Um, basically what happens is it snows, you get a bunch of, of dust and junk blown onto the glacier. That gets compressed. It's like walking, it's like walking up a series of stacked plates. And as you walk up the plates, depending on the glaciologist you're working with, each plate represents either one or two years because sometimes you get two depositions. But the point is we, we had this sort of chronicle through time. And so we could walk up, literally walk across like the edges of these stacked plates and, and, and collect uh, locust parts, mostly legs and mandibles got well preserved. Once we had those, then we could do carbon testing. Um, and then we could also use the glaciologist knowledge to estimate the number of years um, during which there were locust outbreaks. And it looks like there were probably locust outbreaks every 5 to 15 years for at least 600 years. Um, and that was really an important finding because it suggested that the outbreaks of the 1870s, 1860s, 1850s were not an aberration caused by European settlement, right? That this locust had been doing its thing happily for centuries. Um, and so um, it, 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 it appears that it's not, it was not regular, right? And so it was probably climate driven. And so you get these sort of weird patterns. Um, but rarely would it go longer than 15 years. Typically, you wouldn't get two, um, uh, two bands with locusts more th for more than about two or three years in a row, and more frequently than about every five years. Um, and so they, they were basically humming along well before we got here. We just ended up feeding them. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Right. Yeah. Right. Ta ta yeah. Feed him tamarisk and cheat grass. Yeah, we love the locusts. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. Problem solved. Um, actually, going to the to the what they ate, they ate virtually anything, um, especially if it actually locusts as well as many grasshoppers eat by the elimination of well, basically, if there's not a repellent, it must be food. Right? So they're not really right, keen in on something that's a feeding stimulant. It's the lack of a repellent, sort of like a teenager. So, um, so yeah, exactly, yeah, right. Kind of the same thing, right? right? There's nothing growing on it. It must be edible. So, um, so they probably, yep, so I bet they probably would eat virtually anything. Um, yeah, what, there you go. Oh, and could we read? Um, the genetic material is is uh, reasonably well preserved. I actually, I'm not a geneticist, but I worked with a geneticist up in Canada, um, and and uh, he actually found the material in the glacier to be um, quite well preserved. In principle, we could um, we could reconstitute the Rocky Mountain locust along with mammoths and cave bears and uh, passenger pigeons and everything else and, and then we would have them and know where to put them so that would be yeah that that's the problem with with that but oh, that, that was the yeah, yeah, yes oh I said we'd have somewhere to put all right all right and then we get the molecular biologist to put in a gene for kudzu eating and we'd all right so clearly we'll be able to think our way out of this one yeah <laughs> yeah yeah Why would we want them back? I mean, I, I would like them back in a sense because, um, all right, so here's, here's my soapbox here, right? Um, 
My sense is that the, that the one human virtue that we're most lacking in um, in the contemporary world is humility. Um, in that sense that we're in control, um, that only animals that serve us are animals worth having around. Um, I, I think we would do fine with the Rocky Mountain locust. Yeah, we'd lose some agricultural crops, blah, blah, blah. Um, we lose those anyway, right? We lose most of them through our own stupidity. Um, and so this native speed, I mean, to me, you know, it's, it's sort of like, suppose, suppose we could make a world, right, or, or, or a nation, right, that never again had a hurricane, never again had a tornado, right? right? We, could, we could manage the weather so there would never be a hurricane and no hail, no damaging hail ever, right? Is that a better world? I mean, there's something, there, well, there's something about being in Laramie and trying to grow a garden, which is stupid in itself, <laughs> right? But there's something about the connection to the world when, when that hailstorm, the, so it tunes me in, right? That cloud begins to build and I begin to get anxious, right? And then, then it starts raining and get those, you know, that heavy rain and then you get those little pellets and you're going, oh God, please God, not this time. And then it passes over. And, and it's, it embeds you in the world. You realize that you're not in control, that it's not all up to you, that, um, that the control of nature is not ours. Um, and it's a, you know, it's, it's what, a, what a phenomenon, right? What a, what a sort of a humbling, um, phenomenal reminder. Um, you, know, you know, you hear about people, these crazy people who are upset when the periodical cicadas emerge. Right? And they don't even do much damage, right? The tips of a few trees die, big deal. The trees don't die, right? And it's like somehow their world has come to an end because there's, you know, several weeks of cicadas. It's like, wow, you know, rather than, rather than whining, right, about this phenomenon, right, that occurs, you know, depending on the brood every 13 to 17 years, you know, it seems like there's a place for us to marvel in that, um, and so, um, and so I think the locust would be a, a good lesson in humility and in our capacity to marvel. And I don't worry that agriculture would come to a screeching halt with, uh, with locusts. So that's... Uh, what's what was that? Yeah, oh, there you go. There you go. Well, we can... Right, a few insects. The other thing that's in the book that you, you should buy the book... Um, the other thing that's just wonderful in there, just very quickly, is that so there during these, yeah, there are some for sale. During these locust outbreaks, right, it was like, holy crap, what are we going to do? And so they invented these wonderful locust harvers, harvesters, right, the king suction machine. It was a horse drawn, gigantic, horse powered vacuum cleaner <laughs> that sucked the locusts off the prairie. Right, which was great, and then there was another. Anyway, there were all of these devices, which probably did nothing at all, but it convinced people that they that, that they got them out and, and believing that they were doing something. Um, and so they, uh, uh, there, there's these wonderful pictures, and 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 I've I've wanted to get a grant for years to recreate one of these horse-drawn locust vacuums. I thought they'd just be like. <laughs> Like a Hoover on steroids. Anyway, so there's a, there's that. I think we're done. We're about there. Okay. I think that's a great note to end on, actually. All right. Thank you so much. Cool.
thank you as always for coming, and we hope you'll come back next month. We have uh, Master Fly Fisher here talking about the World Youth Fly Fishing Championships that are coming to Colorado. So we hope to see you in June. All insects all summer. (laughs) (laughs) Have a good night.